All right. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I want to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. And we'll continue uh, with our teaching time this morning where we're going to look into God's Word. As we get started there, I just want to ask you, um, do you ever get the vague impression you're going about your day, about your business, that something is not quite right? You have this sort of haunting suspicion, the notion that something bad is going to happen and it's probably your fault because you probably did something wrong. And it just sort of lives with you in a nebulous kind of way. Well, that happened to me one day when I was a teenager and I was up at my grandparents' cottage in Muskoka. And we had been having just frigid, frigid temperatures and then it warmed up uh, for a little while and there was a fresh snowfall. So I decided I'm going to take uh, my grandfather's snowmobile out and I'm going to uh, just enjoy just uh, some of the nice weather that we're having. And so I went uh, around all on the local trails and on the roads and stuff. Um, but I knew that this machine had some power to it. And so what I really needed was a straightaway, a long open space where I could just open it up and just really let this thing out. So I decided I was going to head out on the lake. And I thought, fantastic, you know, this is great. Um, I just open it up and the sun is shining and the wind is blowing and I'm just really having a great time. It's fantastic. But I begin to get the vague sense that something is not quite right. And I begin to hear a sound. And the sound, I'm trying to isolate it and I'm running through the listed category of sounds in my head that might be present while one is out on a snowmobile on the lake. And it doesn't sound like wind, and it doesn't sound mechanical, and it doesn't sound, and all of a sudden it occurs to me, it sounds a little bit like, like water. That's not a great sound. So I look ahead, and as far as I can see, there's just snow and ice and everything is great. I turn to look behind me, and what I see is, as I pass over a piece of ice, it breaks away, and there is nothing but open water immediately behind my snowmobile. And so I just didn't know what to do. I just kept the throttle full open, <laughs> keep moving at all costs, and just head straight for land, the nearest body of land I could find. And so I rammed it up onto the, onto the beach, and I turned and looked at this Nice little trail all the way from where I started at the other side of the lake of open water where just enough of the weight of the snowmobile and my weight and the churn of the tread had kind of broken through the ice. And thankfully, you know, I was able to get across safely to the shore. But I didn't tell my grandfather about this and I also did not take his snowmobile out on the lake for a very, very, very long time after that incident. And I was rightly afraid of the dangers of thin ice, which I had not checked in my defense before going out on there. But for me, that all started, the thought process started with the fact of just this sort of vague notion that something wasn't quite right. And some people live with that generalized sense in many, many parts of their lives, a general sense of kind of anxiety or fear that they're doing something wrong or they're not quite getting it right 
and that things are maybe not quite right and something bad is going to happen to them. And oftentimes, you can't quite put a finger precisely on where that sense or feeling comes from, but it follows you around. It just kind of lurks there behind the corners and in the background, and from time to time, it rears itself up and creates some uncomfortable conditions and conversations in your world and grips your heart with fear. Well, here at Jericho, as we've come out of the Christmas season and Epiphany, and now we're going to go into Lent and into Easter, we're in a teaching series entitled Fear Not. And we're exploring places in the Bible, and there's many, 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 many places. In fact, it's one of the most repeated commands in the Bible, do not be afraid or fear not. There's over 400 times in the Bible that it comes up, and we're invited not to be afraid. But how do we do that? We've covered some helpful territory so far. We've talked about the fact that we don't have to be afraid because God is with us in Isaiah. We've talked about the fact that sometimes some of the things or the people or the groups that we are afraid of, if we come to learn and understand more, they're not as scary as sometimes we imagine. Uh, we've come to discuss that uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, and so we don't have to give in to fear automatically. And then last weekend, uh, Pastor Wally and Michelle talked about mental health and the church, and they reminded us of the fact that when we live in an integrated way within a community that's authentic, we can experience hope and healing and support uh, for our journey. And so as you can see, as we come at this from all of these different angles and more, the topic of fear and learning not to be afraid is multifaceted and complicated. And while I can't be sure of it, I'm growing increasingly convinced that for many people in our room today and listening online, they live with this general sense of fear and anxiety, often present but nebulous. And and in a conversation a few weeks ago, somebody said, you know, I, I live with this fear, and if you ask me to identify it, I would say it feels like God is always mad at me. Do you ever feel this way? That God is mad at you? Almost like you're a student, and the principal is following you around, watching your every move. And you keep looking over your shoulder and thinking, what have I done? Have I done something? Should I be this? And the principal has a very dour expression on their face and is just sort of stalking you lest you make a mistake. And as soon as you do it, you know they're just going to pounce on you and you're going to mess up. And so it's just a matter of time. Some people feel like that about God, that God's somehow just waiting around for you to mess something up. And then it's going to prove that all... Oh, God's opinion about you is right all along, that you're off base and you need to be punished. And this feeling can manifest itself in all kinds of, of subtle ways. Sometimes people talk to themselves and think, well, you know, if something bad happens to me, maybe physically or I get sick or you get in a car accident or something, you think, well, I probably deserve that. You know, there's probably some hidden sin in my life that I'm being punished for. Or maybe you think to yourself, you know, I know myself well. I know that I have a lot of things 
that I'm still in process on and that I'm trying to work through with the help of God and the Holy Spirit, but I'm not there yet. And so, I'm going to mess up. And so, you wonder sometimes, how could God love me if I keep doing that same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again? Like, I try and stop. Really, I do. But it feels like sometimes I take one step forward and it's three steps back. So, you begin to develop the impression that despite coming to God and confessing it to Him in repentance and despite working that through in the context of loving community with other people, that somehow God is still really, really at the core mad at you. That He may listen to other people when they pray, but not you. You never do anything right, and this means God's permanently mad at your failures. Friends, today I want us to wrestle with and come to an appreciation of the fact that the liberating truth of the Scriptures is that God is not mad at you. I can tell from some of your faces that you're still likely living with this brooding sense and trying to figure out, okay, where does this fear come from and why does it kind of keep sneaking into my life? So this morning we're going to look at three primary scripts that I think fuel this fear. One is, one is the biblical script. Do we see this in Scripture? What do we see in Scripture about this? The second is a cultural script. What does our, uh, the place and time in which we live influence our thoughts about who God is and how He works in the world? And then third is a personal script, our own experiences. How do they shape our interactions with and view of God? Because each one of these actually has a very powerful and shaping influence in both our hearts and our heads. And it influences whether or not we can fully receive some of the things that God desires to offer us. So, let's look at script number one, the biblical script. So, the notion that God is angry or God is somehow mad at you probably didn't materialize just out of thin air or your personal experience. It had to come from somewhere. And if we are honest, if you were to completely come brand new to the Bible and you were just to pick up in the Old Testament, you didn't know anything about God, and just start reading, there are plenty of biblical texts that talk about God's anger. And so, if you were to read through the Old Testament, you'd come across a decent amount of times where God demonstrates anger or gets angry. In fact, some readers of the Old Testament, as they look through this, they say, you know, some of the stuff that God seems on about, it's not even just anger. It actually seems like He's downright vindictive. And He, he has this sort of notion that as soon as you do something wrong, He is just right there and you are going to get it. So, for example, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 13, this is just one example of the multiplicity of times that God says to Israel, I am angry with you. <laughs> you and in this instance, He says, in fact, you, are, you are, have repeatedly walked away from Me to the place where actually there's consequence. You're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6, the Spirit of God descends on Saul and at that moment, Saul gets angry. And so, if you're reading through, you just go, what's up with that? God fills this person or comes to this person and the result is they're angry? 
Or in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9, Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, God says, I am angry with you. Or in the Psalms, repeatedly, there's moments or expressions where the writer cries out and says, God, are you going to be angry with me forever? Are you going to be angry with us forever? And so, the, if you were a reader of the Old Testament, you'd come across these patterns where people violated God's laws or instructions. God responds. People respond to God's response, either in repentance or hardness of heart. And then the cycle begins all over again. And so, the Old Testament gives us a window or an insight into a, a part of God's character and His actions and interactions that we have to wrestle with. Is the witness of biblical text in favor of God just being really, really angry? Well, we can't say everything about Old Covenant, New Covenant today, Old Testament, uh, but I think it's important to note two things in this discussion. And the first thing is that when God demonstrates, uh, and sometimes when the, when the Scriptures are using the word angry, um, it's God demonstrating a category uh, that doesn't actually exist for us, and that is God's wrath. God's wrath is justly and rightly directed against sin and evil. And so, sometimes when we, when we read through the Old Testament, we think, boy, God just seems to fly off the handle at stuff, like the slightest offense committed against Him, and boom, you know, He's on it. Well, divine wrath is a category that is altogether different from anger. It's a quality that we don't actually possess as human beings because when we get angry, it's attached to emotion and it's attached to whole sets of other things going on in our life and in our experience. But God can actually experience a desire and an action to punish sin and evil that's not connected to His emotive presence. It's God's divine wrath that's separate from what we can experience. And when we choose something outside of God's intentions and His best, we're choosing that which the Bible names as sin. And God is perfectly holy, and He wants to stem the destructive influences of sin in your life and in the world. And so, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, uses the image of a parent applying correction to a child and says, God's discipline is always good for us. And the purpose of God's discipline and the purpose of God's correction is that we would share in His holiness, that we would come to learn more about what it means to live in congruence with who God is. And there's lots more that could be said uh, about that. If you want to discuss that more, one helpful thing would be if you go on our website and you go to the bottom, there's a search tool. And if you type in wrath or God's wrath, uh, we did a teaching series and touched on it a few times in 2011. And so you could listen to that. And then if you want to talk more about that, I'd love to do that. Uh, send me an email or we'll talk over a coffee and we can talk a little bit more uh, about that. The other thing that we need to remember in this conversation is that we seldom go to the biblical text without an agenda. And if we come with the agenda that is already saying, and in a conviction in our hearts, I am already believe that God is angry, 
then we're going to find that which we are looking for. And you're also going to experience a confirmation bias, and you're going to then have your hypothesis further reinforced, but you will also miss or choose to selectively overlook other texts when you go in with your mind already made up. And that's true on any topic, but particularly on this one. So, for example, if you were to flip the lens and you were to say instead, I'm going to go through the Old Testament and I'm going to actually look and see, does God seem loving in the Old Testament? You would actually see incredible witness over and over and over again of God's love and compassion demonstrated. A few examples. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, God, you are a God of compassion and mercy. You are slow to get angry. You're slow to move to that place of corrective punishment and corrective um, uh, influence. But you, you demonstrate unfailing love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, 8 and 9. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, this phrase, he's slow to get angry. He's filled with unfailing love. See, when you go to the Scripture with your mind made up, you'll find what you're looking for. And we need to be careful to take both the witness of Scripture uh, as a whole, as a unit, so both Old and New Testament, and ask, what do we discover when we put the whole picture together about the character and the nature of God? Because there's so much there. And even in the prophets, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Micah cries out and says, where is there another God like you who pardons guilt, who overlooks the sins of people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Or in Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, the Lord, again the same phrase, the Lord is slow to get angry. But His power is great. He does never let the guilty go unpunished, but the Lord is good. He's a strong refuge to those who trust in Him. And that's just the Old Testament. That's not even taking into account the witness of the New Testament and the multiplicity of times over and over and over again where God's patience and His love is revealed to us and held in this dynamic tension with His justice and His holiness. And so, as we finish off our analysis of Script 1, let me give you a coaching tip on how to read the Bible, how to read the biblical texts. And that is that we're a part of a post-Reformation tradition called the Anabaptists. And Anabaptists read the Scripture actually through a particular lens. We read the Bible Christocentrically, which means that we see Christ at the center of God's revelation. Not just meaning chronologically, like that stuff happens approximately at the middle, but in the sense that what happens before it points to Him, and what happens after it bears witness to and expounds upon His character, who He is. But we look at Christ at the center, and we ask ourselves then, we don't approach Scripture as kind of a completely flat text where all parts get the same weight. We say things in our confession of faith like, God revealed Himself supremely in Jesus Christ. By what we, and what we mean by that is, if you want to know what God is like, look at what Jesus is like. Look at Jesus' life, His teaching, His work. Jesus shows us most fully and clearly what God 
is like. And so if there's other parts of Scripture that are fuzzy or unclear or we have this tension in our minds, it's helpful to go to Jesus and say, how can we bring this into more clear focus? So, for example, with the question, is God angry? We could say, well, was Jesus angry? in his orientation towards those around him, to people. I mean, he did get angry at moments, but where and why? Where was it directed and why? So I'll leave you to do some research and thinking on that because we need to move on uh, to our second script that's running in the background. But that can be a helpful way for us to, again, process some of these questions when we come to the biblical text, to read the Scriptures Christocentrically. Script two cultural scripts, and God's anger. Now, the question here that we have to think about is, in, in art and literature and pop culture, how is God generally portrayed? See, when I was in high school, we went on uh, a trip, and we had a few days stopover in Rome. And so, one of the things on our list in Rome is to go to the Sistine Chapel. And if you ever get the chance, the Sistine Chapel is an awe inspiring place. I mean, just everywhere, there's just paintings of, of these biblical scenes that Michelangelo did. And on the ceiling is these amazing portraits and, and frames of the book of Genesis, just like laid out and what was happening uh, and the uh, artist's interpretation of that. And the one that caught my eye when I was there was the second panel. And so the, the scene where God is creating the sun and the moon and separating light from darkness. And the guidebook says that the painting is showing the stupendous force necessary to separate light from darkness and to create a home for humankind. But when I looked at the painting... It just looked like God was angry. He looks more like a character from Greco-Roman mythology floating on the clouds with a spear or a lightning bolt ready to just kind of hang over the clouds and as soon as you do something wrong, throw it down and smite you. That's kind of the cultural script that exists or one of them around the God of the Bible. I think we just have to acknowledge how these things, our cultural scripts, growing up in the time and place in the world in which we live, have informed and shaped our understandings or our thoughts about who God is and how we interact with God. Some of those cultural scripts are actually just running in the background of our minds when we talk about or pray or engage with God. And if we think about kind of the general cultural perspective, and we took everything from classic Renaissance art to like flannel, church flannel graphs to modern animation, generally, other than the parts that have been played by Morgan Freeman, God is generally angry. <laughs> he looks angry in these kind of cultural uh, milieu, and that sets in motion a script or a notion of what characterizes God. What are the other things that characterize God? A lot of the, the, the witness of Scripture about who God is is not brought to bear in those cultural conversations. The, it's not about God's joy, His peace, His patience, His kindness, His gentleness, His goodness, or any of the other 
innumerable things that we see that God is revealed in Scripture. The primary image that comes up in the cultural discussion is God is angry, you should be afraid of Him, you've probably done something to make Him angry, therefore you're deserving. And so in our culture we carry this in funny ways. One of the ways that we carry this is if something really destructive or bad happens, we call it an act of God. Because the cultural script has told us that's the kind of stuff that God does. And so when bad things happen in the world, sure enough, some religious person somewhere is going to get up or tweet about it or say something really stupid that God is punishing X or Y or this is all because, you know, God has this vendetta against these particular people or country or whatever. So the cultural script is alive and well. Our cultural our culture has decided to associate vindictive, negative, destructive things with God. And we need to be aware of the fact that when then we're talking with people about God and your personal experiences of and your scriptural understanding of God, they might be coming with just a very, very different lens into that conversation. And we come sometimes with that lens into the conversation and sometimes we're not even aware of it when we're singing or when we're reading the Bible or when we're praying. And so it's important to unearth and address and actually work to change and challenge some of these cultural scripts. One of the ways that we can do this is just to be aware of the times that uh, we do things anthropomorphically, which is a long and uh, not uh, imprecise way of saying we give God human attributes and qualities sometimes that God doesn't always suggest that He has. But we like to do that because it makes sense for us. God is beyond knowing and comprehension, but sometimes we dumb God down by attributing things to Him, emotions, motives, actions, characteristics, that we as human beings might do if we were God. And so that begins to shape and form our conception of God. And not all of this is bad and wrong. I mean, we need human language to try and access and make shape out of a sense of relationships. And God chose to reveal Himself to us in the written Word and through witness and testimony. And so, human language comes with some of those challenges and limitation. You can get the linguist to say amen to that in the crowd. But, uh, so we need that. But sometimes we re reach the limits and yet, even though we've reached the limits, we decide we're going to keep going in our understanding and trying to picture who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is often illustrated really well and helpfully for us in cartoons or caricatures. So, for example, here's one uh, from Bizarro Comics. God's on the phone and He's saying, no, no, don't hold dinner. I still have to pick winners for the Grammys. You know, everyone's going to thank Him at the Grammys. And this week's football game, you know, both teams are going to take pray to Jesus to see if they can win. And I also need to apparently tell people to run for political office because they all thank Him once they got in. Like we're taking things that are human characteristics and actions and interactions and attributing them to God. But there's a danger of making God in our own image because He warned us that we should not do that. And so, just because we might get angry at something that happens, we sometimes automatically assume that God will get angry at it. But that's, again, anthropomorphism and the influence of our cultural script 
playing itself out. But probably the most powerful script is not actually the biblical script. It's probably not actually the cultural script. Probably the most powerful script is the script of personal experiences. And part of this is a real challenge because there are so many people in our world and in this room who grew up in an atmosphere that was characterized by anger. And so whenever those people hear God described as a loving or parental figure, if they didn't have that experience, then it begins to shape and taint their view um, and their relationship with God. See, if you are a person that experienced or is experiencing abuse of any kind, whether it's physical or sexual or emotional or from an authority figure, when you think about relating to God as an authority figure, that's going to get in the way. It's going to, the script of your negative personal experiences are going to fire up. So let me say a few things about this. Firstly, if you have or you are experiencing abuse, you need to speak up about it. You need to express that you need help. What happened to you and what maybe is happening to you is not okay. And you need to know that there are people here at Jericho who will help you and who will walk with you on your journey. Pastor Wally or myself or Mike or Jenna would all be people who you could talk to about this. And so do not suffer in silence through this past or through the present on your own. You need to work to break the cycle. I think the other thing that needs to be said is if that distortion came from your family of origin and you have a conflicted or distorted or distant relationship with your earthly parents, particularly your earthly father, when you come to church or when you read the Bible and images of God as a loving heavenly father come up, sometimes you just are blocked from being able to receive that. And friends, this is a very, very common reality. Because part of the challenge is that none of us actually, even if you had an exceptionally good relationship with your father or with your parent, none of us had a perfect relationship with them. There are always places and moments of disappointment, of brokenness. Even if they were kind and loving, they were human. They make mistakes. They were a product of their generation. They were a product of their upbringing. They brought their own issues and their own junk into their relationship with you. And your dad may not have been or your parent may not have been an angry person. But there'll be some elements that create challenge for each of us. And so we need to just name some of those and identify them and begin to work through some of those things. And one of the things that becomes challenging and complex is that if your parent was an angry person and you grew up in an atmosphere of anger and you carry that with you, that, that comes into all of the environments where you find yourself 
engaging with others. And so you need to know that that may have defined or described your experiences in the past, but when relating to God, your Father in heaven is perfect and He is not an angry person. Part of your journey of faith, part of all of our journey of faith is actually to work out and separate our earthly experiences and our earthly uh, scripts from our perceptions of and interactions with and relationship with God. And this is tricky. It is not an uncomplicated process. But if you're able to keep working at it, by God's grace, you can begin to live a rich and deeper sense of what it means to experience God's love. And I don't actually know why God, knowing that all of us, if you're a parent, none of us are perfect, and so we're going to transfer some of that onto our, onto our kids if you're a parent. So I, I'm not 100% sure why God chose to use the image of a parent to describe part of who God is. But part of the image of a healthy parent does help us understand some aspects of what God wants to teach us about who He is. So in the image of a healthy parent, God would say things to you like, I created you. I know you. I knew you before you were born. I knew your name before you ever came into being. And I did this, and I know you, and I love you. God would say things to you like, just because I love you does not mean I automatically like everything you do. You're a human being. You're going to make mistakes. So when we say God loves you, that does not mean that you're perfect. And it does not mean that He'll never be displeased with actions that you take to bring again that sense of correction and parental discipline. On the flip side of that, God is not pleased with you because you do everything right or you toe the line or you're just a fantastic person and that God should be somehow delighted that you're on His team. You're not going to go through your life as a perfect person. And so God's pleasure with you, His love for you is not dependent on you making sure that you do everything right. But just like you love your kids, hopefully for, not for what they do, but for who they are and the relationship that you have with them. God's not pleased with you because you get it right all the time. God is pleased with you because you're His child. And that might be a message that you have to fight tooth and nail through a lot of junk in your life to hear. That God loves you, and that God is pleased with you. Author John Bloom said on the Desiring God blog, it's crucial that we remember and keep in our minds that everything God feels towards us as Christians is gracious. Even when God disapproves of sinful behaviors and habits and thoughts and disciplines us, this is also a precious form of His favor. It's what a loving parent does. 
And so if you're living in a relationship with God as His child, you've said, God, I want to be a part of your family, I can say with definitive confidence this morning that God loves you and He is not mad at you. Why can I say that? Because we know things about God's character. He has told us who He is. What do we know about God's character? Well, God might display anger, but when God says, this is who I am, Look at the book of 1 John over and over and over and over and over again in just a short, compact book. God says, I am love. I want you to tell people about who I am at the core, and I am love. I might display anger, but I am love. And we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love because God is love. And all who live in love, love in, live in God, and God lives in them. When God says, John, I want you to put on display, I want you to, to articulate the deepest and highest words of who I am and what I'm like, my essence is, tell them, I am love. Again, God might correct, but even His correction is out of who He is, love. Proverbs 3, verse 12, the Lord corrects those that He loves just like a parent corrects a child that they delight in. And you might be living in a place in your life right now where you feel distant or far from God's love. Part of the challenge might be not that you don't know intellectually that God loves you, but you might be thinking and acting in ways that remove you from the experience of God's love. You might have made choices to say, you know what, God, I don't want you in these areas of my life, and so you're living distant from Him. The image of the prodigal son comes to mind. The prodigal was living far, far, far away, but the father every day, still longed for the return of that prodigal, still got up, went, and said, I wonder if today's the day that prodigal will come home to me. Friend, today might be your day to return to the Father who loves you. There's areas of your life that you feel a stirring about, things that are not right, that's conviction. That's different from God not displaying His love. That is, in fact, again, a corrective influence and display and evidence that He does love you and desires for you to be in right relationship with Him or others. And so if you're feeling that nudge of conviction in areas of your life, just take time this morning to tell God that you're sorry for those things, for your sins. Repentance is that gateway back into right relationship with God. I love the language of Jeremiah 31 verse 3 in the message. God said to His people who were wandering far, far from Him at that time, God says, I told them, I've never quit loving you and I never will. What to expect from God? Love, 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 and more love. How do we know that God loves us? Well, the place where this was shown most fully, when deeply was on the cross, because Jesus absorbed the punishment 
that you and I deserve. He took our sins and our sorrows and made them His very own. See, the cross stands in history as an indisputable demonstration of the love that God has for all of humankind. But receiving the gifts that God has to give to us, receiving a gift of His love for us, is something that happens by faith. We actually have to believe that Jesus is who He said He is, and we have to receive the gift of forgiveness that He is offering us. And so just like the gift of salvation, the gift of rightly restored relationship with God is something that we receive by faith. We don't receive it because we deserve it or that we've somehow got our act together or that we've promised God for the thousandth time, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this time I can make that happen. We receive it because by faith God has declared it to be true. So we're going to move into a time of celebrating communion today. And as we do so, I want to invite you to take a few moments to just spend time in reflection and ask, do you sense in some way that God is still maybe angry with you? And if you've done the hard work of confession and asking God to release you from those places of sin and you're learning that healthy differentiation between your earthly and your heavenly Father, but you still have that sense, then there might be a few things for you today just to spend time asking God, God, I want to hear, I need to hear your gentle and loving voice. The voice that I have heard, the things that I have told myself to be true about who you are and how you work in the world are voices of anger, voices of fear, Voices that do not sound gentle and loving. Would you allow me again to receive that and hear and experience your pleasure with me, that you love me? And then press in. Ask God and say, you know what, God, I need to receive from you by faith an accurate perception of who you are. I need to know. I need to walk in and live in that place. I want to receive that gift of freedom. Friends, when it comes to God's love for you and for I, for me, the ice is not thin. It's not going to snap and crack the first time you do something wrong. The thunderbolt is not poised for you to be thrown in your direction. You do not have to live with the lie and the fear that if you're a part of God's family, that He is somehow fundamentally mad at you because love is greater than fear. Let me pray for you. God, we're grateful for the love that you have demonstrated to us in Jesus by sending the Spirit to bear witness, to bring correction of sin, where we need it. And so, God, here in this place today, we want to just affirm yet again our desire to experience, to know your love. We open our hearts, our spirits to receive it. We open our eyes spiritually to fix them on you. And, God, I pray that all of the distractions and the lies that will continue to assault and bleed into that place 
would be cut off in the name of Jesus here in this place today. And so, God, we desire to know you and to know the power of your resurrected life and the freedom that you won for us on the cross of Calvary. And so we receive it by faith in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're here at Jericho. Uh, our communion table is an open table, and what that means is that you do not have to be perfect in order to come to the table. This is a place for hungry people to find nourishment spiritually and strength for the journey. And so the bread symbolizes Christ's body, which was broken for you. And the fruit of the vine represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for you and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And there's two stations uh, today. Wally and Mike will be over at this station. And then we'll have Sandy and Muriel over at this station. And whenever you're ready, you can make your way to the table and you can take the cup and you can take the bread and make, take it back to your seat and you can eat and drink it. And when you do that, you do that by faith. You receive the gift of love and forgiveness that your Father offers to you. And Ron and the team are going to lead us in uh, songs that express those things and myself and James Carpenter and Gary Stevenson and Katie will be available just at the back for you if you want someone to pray with you. I would say also if you're here today and you've never actually said yes to Jesus and never said, I want to be a part of God's forever family, today is the day to do that. And so we'd love to pray with you and explore what it means to come and receive the forgiveness and the love that Jesus offers you in a real and personal way. So whenever you're ready, you can make your way to the communion table. If you'd like to stand for worship, you're welcome to do that. If you want to kneel in repentance, however you want to express uh, that to God, feel free to do that.